welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome to this second half of my conversation with Moshe Vardy, a professor of computer science at Rice University in the US, where we shift the focus to the more general challenges and changes in academic life. Moshe reflects on the increasing pressures to publish. He critiques how we evaluate research and the seduction of big data here, and on the increasing stress that our students are experiencing right now. We also discuss the paradox of, on on the one hand, needing academics to get more involved in social issues, but training people to be very self-centred, focusing on advancing their own careers. We discuss whether we should be focusing more on mentoring post-tenure people too, because of how hard it is to sustain an, an innovative research agenda over time. And he finishes up challenging our very notion of what service is and urging us to have more conversations about obligations to take on social responsibility. He speaks from deep experiences and raises many provocative ideas. You've been in academia for a long time and been deeply involved in a lot of the very sort of senior roles and numerous awards and prizes and titles and things. Just from within sort of, you know, as an academic life, you know, in what sort of ways have you seen big changes happening being an academic, not necessarily being computer scientist per se? I mean, the thing that, that I see is, um, and technology is part of it, mm. but the other part, there is a, and maybe also it's, I don't know, not necessarily technology, but there is, there is a inflationary, inflationary process. This goes on, and I don't know. I mean, I'm. I've I've talked about it. I've written about it. And I don't know what we can do about it. I'm kind of. We need to do something about it, but it's not clear what 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 exactly we can do. So uh, when I finished my PhD, I had a, I think one paper just appeared in a conference, mm-hmm. and one was to appear. And the rest was I had clear that I will I've fin- I've done the work and I will take chapter for my for my uh, dissertation and publish them and so I did end up some some of the dissertation was published only after that yeah. as paper but the focus first of all write your dissertation yeah. and then then, then. now we said no no you have to finish with papers okay why you have to finish with paper well job market job market so what happened so I had I'm still trying to think. You know, maybe how many chapters I had, uh, maybe three or four paper would have come out. But I said, when I, when I graduated, there were two, and then mm-hmm. later, maybe another three came later. So at some point, somebody says, everybody around me has only three papers. If I have four papers when I finish my PhD, yes. I will be ahead. Yes. And then the next guy said, everybody around me has four papers. So if I have five papers, I will be ahead. Now people feel that if they don't graduate with ten papers, they're not competitive in the job market. And I've seen people now come come out of the PhD with 20 papers, which I find absolutely incredible. That's 
And I had this. Would you say they were all good quality? People? No, I don't think so. Yeah. And I, I want to tell you what part of how it happens. So I want. I had the students, and she was a first-year PhD student. And the first semester, she mostly took courses because she does course requirement. I mean, you have to in the United States, it's directly from the bachelor. So partly we, we need them to take as a course requirement. They need to take more advanced courses. Yeah. So in the in the first in the fall, the first fall she just took courses, and then in the spring she started doing a research project. You know, I mean, what is you start a research project? You have to do some reading. You have to learn an area. I mean. Mm-hmm. And then in the summer, I sent to a conference. And she came back from the conference agitated. I'm very worried. I'm falling behind. I said, how can you be falling behind? You're a first-year PhD student. I met some of my colleagues from also first-year PhD students from another university. They already had a paper there mm-hmm. at the conference. I said, wait a minute. Conference is in July. The deadline was in January. How can they show up in September yeah. and have a paper in, in January? He said, oh, they take some existing project, they let them do a little programming there, and they add their name to the paper. And so this expectation that you have many papers now is kind of corrupting the system in yeah. some sense, right? People yeah. say, well, okay, surely you have to do something to be an author. We'll give you something to do so we can justify, and you'll have a paper after in January, after you started in in December, mm. I mean, I, I, if I have a, I would say usually if my students write a paper, it will be usually in the maybe in the in the in the second, not in the first, in the yeah. first in the first year. It yeah. will take them a year to read and do something. Yeah. Then in the next fall, I'm hoping that, that that if you write a paper in the at, by the end of the third semester i'm happy to me they have done that's good progress for a phd student but there is just increasing pressure on yeah. students and i you know i so i when i i cannot believe that somebody will finish a phd with 20 good papers i just inconceivable no, it's just okay. yeah it does it doesn't make sense it sounds I, like authorships like that where they might have done a little bit that yeah. contributed at the yeah. side and and so there is there is this inflationary process and one of the things that, again, technology makes it much more easier now to to see exactly, I mean, it, it, there's more transparency now, right? You can yeah. go and see exactly how many papers you have and exactly how many citations you have. Mm. And it's not, I'm not convinced that this, this greater measurability is necessarily uh, something that is, mm. that is helpful. So, you know, I was here in Vienna just a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And I went to an interesting conference, which was, what was it called? Research Evaluation Policy Impact. I think that's the name. Mm-hmm. But it was a conference of um, research and innovation bureaucrats. So that in, especially in Europe, there are a lot of research innovation agencies. Yes. And there are people who work at these agencies, and they had a conference. And the question that they wanted me to talk about was how to use big data to help in the assessment, in the evaluation of research and innovation. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm the technologist, and I went there with a cautionary, give them, I said, be careful. You know, if you start measuring, do we know what to measure? Yes. And the reality is to really evaluate research. I mean, we all have to do it all the time, but we, we have to say, 
we are simply stick our fingers in the, yeah. in, in the air. What's the right, what is the value of research? I mean, most research, first of all, we have to be honest, most research is, is to be forgotten. History is very cruel to research. The vast majority of research, I suspect 99%, I'm making it up, but I think the vast majority, okay, if you ask, you ask mathematicians, you ask people, okay, name famous scientists from the 19th century. How many names can people mm-hmm. come up with? Mm-hmm. 19th century. Okay. Mm-hmm. How many people can, how many names can people come up with? I would say is if you can come up with 20 names, I think you're doing great. If you could even come up with 20. But, you know, 20, I think, yeah. you know, I think 20 yeah. would be, most people are forgotten. Yeah. Most people are forgotten. This is what happened. So how do you assess, how do you assess re- research? Should you assess it in what happened? What's the impact now? What's the impact over 50 years? How, and we don't have, we must, you know, ultimately assessing research is like assessing art. Long term society somehow, history will decide what's important, what's not important. We have to make some judgment now, but we must be incredibly modest yeah. about the quality of our judgment. Now, there are all this, uh, all this uh, data is there. So data give you the illusion this is measurable. So there is tremendous attention now to to H index. So part of what I did, I showed them, you know, my Google Scholar profile and, uh, and, a, and a colleague of mine. And I have a fairly high H number. Mm-hmm. And I said, you think that, I said, okay, out of, out of these two people, mm-hmm. me and my colleague, mm-hmm. my colleague and me, who's more likely to get a Turing Award? I have a much higher H number. I said, if he's going to, he may get a Turing Award. I don't think I'll get a Turing Award. He may get it because he has done a few things that are much more significant. Yeah. It doesn't translate to H number. Yeah. H number is an index that somebody made up. Yeah. It's a nice index, a good proxy, but people start to take these numbers with way too much as if we're measuring, you know, the, the speed of light yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And there was a story that was it recently last year or something about a woman who got awarded a Nobel Prize the same day she got her grant rejected and it didn't even get sent out to review Catherine yes, yes, some, yes, somewhere yes, or other. Yes, she did, she did uh, some yes. gene editing or something. Yeah, I there, can't there, was, remember. there was something there. There was definitely something there. But I just remember the you know, Nobel Prize and uh, you know, a, a she, grant. Oh, she, didn't have, she didn't have a Wikipedia page. She didn't have a Wikipedia. She did not have a Wikipedia page because she was not important enough to win, to have a Wikipedia page, and now she suddenly gets yeah. the, the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So quickly they go and yeah. put a Wikipedia. But, but page she also for got her. a grant rejected, triaged out, not even sent to review because they yeah. said it wasn't yeah. good enough or didn't yeah. show enough promise or something. Yeah. I know. So what do we do about changing? Because we're, I think, you know, before we started recording, you talked about the increasing stress of. Students and did you say forty percent of students were accessing? I was told by I was told by by Etrais that forty percent of our students now mm. are going at some point to mm. counselling services asking for some help. Yeah, and I again I I'm not a sociologist. It's a I think it's a complex it's a complex picture. Uh, I think it's a combination of things. One is economic anxiety. Mm. I mean we still are in the I mean, my parents grew up in the, in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And it must have been a, for them a, an event that shaped, you know, it had a tremendous impact. Yeah. We're in, still in the aftermath of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think there's a level of economic anxiety that is, people are feeling still more fragile about, about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States in particular, the cost of education has continued to increase. And we are seeing now, for example, we have a crisis in the humanities. The students are abandoning the humanities. Because if you combine this economic anxiety with the rising cost of tuition, they want to finish the undergraduate degree and be able to get a, a well-paying job so they can pay back whatever loans yes. they had. Yeah. And so wh- where will you get a, a well-paying job in four years? Engineering. Mm. So the number of engineering students have kind of doubled. And the number of humanities students has gone down by about 50%. Which is very interesting given the challenges that we've just been talking about in the first half, which are embracing huge concerns that we need humanities. You need the humanities, but somehow, I think humanities somehow did not manage, they need to uh, engage in these issues. I mean, the humanities, they have to, Mm. they have to be in this, in Mm. this discussion about, Mm. about technology and human life and human dignity and, uh, and what is the? These are some of them are old philosophical questions. Yes. What is the good life? I mean, what Soc- is the good life? Socrates yeah. asked these questions, yeah. right? They have to be there, yeah. involved with us, yeah. and but somehow they have sheltered themselves in a way yeah. that they did not serve them well. Mm. Okay. For example, I always complain that uh, the way I was taught history, and I like to like history, is here is what happened, mm. and I tell my 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 historic colleague historian, I said, who cares what happened? And they kind of get, you know, they become apoplectic. What do you mean? You have to know what happened. So why do you have to know what happened? Why do you have to know what happened? So if you dig in, the answer is to understand the way the world it is today, you have to know how it came about. You, we, we talk about mm. technology and work. Mm. We need to know the history yes. of the Industrial Revolution. But that's a different way of teaching. So this is a different way of teaching history. Not here is what happened. Yeah. Here is why the world it is is the way it is today. Let's understand where we come mm. from. Mm. Okay, that to me is a, will make history much more relevant because there are people who said, "Oh, this king and that king, and who cares?" Okay, and mm. I don't remember dates mm. anyway. But if you tell the story, you need to understand the world it is today, and you cannot understand it without understanding understanding yeah. history. Yeah. So, so humanity is yeah, it is it is this crisis of humanity that affects all of us. It's not just it's yeah. not just for the humanities. But in addition to these trends, there is something, I learned a new phrase recently. So you, you might, you may have heard the phrase, uh, helicopter parenting. Yes. Okay. Is it just in America or also it is no, also? No, I think it's a, well, at least in Australia, I've heard of that. There's a new phrase. What? Lawnmower parents. Lawnmower parents. Lawnmower parents. <laughs> so the helicopter parents are just hovering above. The lawnmower parents are holding and pushing. Okay. So, um, you know, in some sense, it's, it's partly how we raise our children and how they're raising their children. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, time change in an in a interesting way. And somehow this, this, and, you know, people talking about, for example, you talk about the millennials. I don't know if you heard the term snowflakes. Have you heard the term no, snowflakes? No, I have not heard snowflakes. So they are just... Incredibly sensitive. I mean, this is again. I don't know what are these post millennials or, me, or post- maybe even post millennial. The kids who are coming now to college. So mm-hmm. let's say they were born around, you know, 2018. So mm-hmm. they were born around the millennium. So they don't come of age. They're born mm-hmm. around the millennium, and uh, you know, they, they, this issue about microaggression and safety and 
and there is just suddenly, you know, oh my goodness, I cannot be offended. Something right. terrible will happen. So you think some of the stress level could also be reflecting that mindset as so well? There in is a way. This, there is, you know, this. I again, some of the, you know, people are. I don't know that I have seen analysis why mm. this this generation of students seem to be much more fragile mm. than previous generation. But, but, but I can tell you, I can tell you, as a, as as a as a teacher, I have to be sensitive to this sensitivity. Mm. That is to say, I need to think. At the end of the day, I have to teach my students where they are, not where I was or where I would like them to be. And if they have a harder time dealing with stress, and mm. I have to be aware so of So what that. changes are you making to respond to that then in your teaching and support? Uh, you know, there are cases where, you know, there are cases where students don't always perform the, at the level that we'd like to perform and we would like to challenge them. Mm. And uh, I'm probably trying to be a bit more gentle and... Uh, <clears throat> encourage them rather mm -hmm. than tell them, no, 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 you must do better than that. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I need to, and I'm kind of to see where are they. You know, I had a student that, you know, was supposed to give a, a cover paper in a seminar. And on Thursday, after, on Thursday evening told me, I don't think I can do it. And I just said, it's okay, we'll reschedule it. Rather than be upset, how come? You know, mm. you should have done it, this was mm. done, you should have planned better. I said, it's okay. We'll replan it, it's okay. So, do you think you're. Um, that sounds very responsive and very sensitive to the students. Is that something you've learned over time, or do you think you were always. No, like I that think sort of... I was not always like that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely was always like that. Partly, uh, I'm also. I grew up in Israel, which is a very, very direct culture. Mm -hmm. So this is not a culture of people, you know, being circumspect and yes. indirect. It's a yes. very direct culture. Yeah. It's a, it's a strength and a, and a, it's a strength. Most of the time it's a strength, not always. I still sometimes, some people think that I'm too direct because I just, uh, I, <laughs> I just don't beat around the bush. I say, but, but let's talk about what we need to talk about. Um, I mean, my wife is from the Midwest, and uh, years ago we went to visit her her parents in the Midwest. We were there, and also her sister and my brother-in-law were there. And uh, at some point I said, well, let's talk about, you know, this is a small house. Suddenly we have her parents, and six people have to sleep. I said, let's talk about sleeping arrangement. And everybody was shocked that somehow this should be resolved quietly without ever discussing it explicitly. So, this is not in the culture. So you realize you're being... Um, <laughs> it's like, my goodness, what, what he's, yeah. he's actually, he actually wants to talk about this. <laughs> I, I found that when I lived in the UK in the beginning, I would just say something, because I think as Australians, we would often be more direct. And then I'd see people react, and then I just learned to say, oh, was I being too Australian? <laughs> you know, because, you know, and then you learn to adapt as well. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, you also, you know what it's like yeah. to live. You've lived in different cultures yeah. now, right? Australia, <laughs> UK, now, now Here, Austria, yeah. so... So, uh, yeah. you, le you learned a little bit. I hope that I've learned a little bit. Well, this is, this is something that I've been thinking about lately as well. We have been involved in a lot of workshops and mentoring of people, especially at early career stages. And I'm starting to think that there's also something really interesting about late career stages. Um, if we look at sort of some of the generational research about stages of life and the different sort of, uh, you know... <laughs> 
as people get into older age, people talk about gerotranscendence and various other sorts of theories and models. And I just wonder about academia as well. So, you know, you being involved in all of these issues around social responsibility and AI and ethics, is did that feel risky to do or do you think you, like, would you have ever thought or felt able to do it as a younger academic or is it something that feel you feel more able to do now that you're... So, you know, I think, I think partly, uh, definitely there's no questions that, uh, that your status enabled you to, to do things that you wouldn't do. I, I would not necessarily advise my younger self. Uh, so I've never been on, on a tenure track because I came, I spent years in my first decade in industry and then I mm. came to Rice mm. directly as a full professor. So I've never been on a, directly on tenure track. But I would not advise to someone who is uh, on a tenure track, I said, right now, you have to, first of all, sit in academia. Mm. First of all, you have to prove yourself as a researcher. Yeah. I said, this is, we expect some service from people because ultimately the, the academic enterprise is run by volunteers, essentially. Yes. The whole thing is run mostly by volunteers. Yes. So it's part of our value system. But mostly what we expect... Uh, First, you have to show that you can you can do the scholarship, the research and the scholarship. So, uh, I you know I still think that uh, in a research university, it's very important. The question to us, I think, what we are we are we're discovering sometimes is that we are basically telling people just be self-centered, and then we're discovering very often after they have received tenure full professor, oh my goodness, they're really self-centered. <laughs> So, so some of them, it turns out, they do have this this uh, willingness to volunteer and uh, and contribute, but but many don't. And we've selected yeah. we've selected them for being self centered. Yeah, we trained them to be, and that we've trained way. them, and then we are kind of surprised. Yeah. Oh my goodness, look at them! Yeah. They're so self, they're so self centered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, this is the kind of the paradox of uh, of academia. I mean, when it comes to mentoring, we had the tries. Uh, some kind of a part of the provost office, there is vice provost of academic affairs, mm-hmm. and there is a there is a project there for, for faculty mentoring. And they focus mostly on mentoring uh, assistant professors. Mm. And I had a conversation with the director of this project, and I said, you're mentoring the wrong people. She said, what? I said, look, I, I was trying to be provocative. I said, I said, professor, what if we don't mentor them? Okay, maybe they won't get tenures. But they make new assistant professors every year, right? Every year there's a new crop of enthusiastic people come. What's the big risk to an institution? The, big, the biggest risk to an institution is not that you hire someone and don't get tenure. Now, I was trying to be provocative, you know. Mentoring helps to take people who, who have talent and they, you know, maybe they have, you have a few course correction and you learn and they will have a, you help them have a great career. So you should mentor young people. But I said the risk to an institution is not that some people will come and will not, will not get tenure. The risk is that people will get tenure and they get tenure. They are typically around 35. They have another 35 years to go in academia. People now, we don't have monetary retirement in the, in the US now. I think here you have mental retirement. We do Austria. still, yes. Yeah. It's still at uh, 65. 65. Yeah. Well, thereabouts, depending on what contract yeah, you're we on. have. We decided this was decided. Mm. This is this is age discrimination. Mm. So there's no monetary retirement, which means that it's become you have to be incredibly careful. Even telling people maybe you should retire could be viewed as age discrimination. 
how do we deal with the fact that ultimately all of us decline at the end and who decide what's the, when is the right time yes. and, and now the deans and chairs are have to be not cannot say it so it's a, it's very problematic but ultimately people typically most people retire around let's say 70 mm. so that means that once you have you have become a associate professor you have 35 years to go yes and you're likely to become maybe even full professor at age 40 you have 30 years to go 30 years that's a long time and so the biggest risk to institution is that people will not stay productive yes. for these 30 years yes so the people that most important institution they should be mentored are these people not the young young people young people you know i said small risk to the institution the biggest risk to the institution is there are people who people don't realize how hard it is, and especially I see it on young people. They complain about some of some of the older people who are not so active. Mm. And I said, let's see you in in, in fifteen years. Yeah. People don't realize how hard it is to have a yeah. in a, in a in a research career where you have to constantly come up with new ideas and innovate. How hard it is to do it for. Really, you think about it. You almost you have to do it when you go to graduate school. Yes. Okay. So let's say early, let's say twenty-five, just to make yes, it around twenties. Yeah. And so we expect people to be innovative now for forty-five years. Yeah. This is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And that's really most people don't do it. It's just very very difficult. Most people don't have. You know, you have to reinvent yourself. Especially in this yeah. area where there's continually change, changing change, you know, environments. You talk to people and somebody says, I can't get any funding now. And, but I'm doing the same thing. Yes. Well, that's, that's why you're not getting <laughs> funding, because you're doing the same mm-hmm. thing. That's a really interesting thought, because that is 35 years of, of what could be really productive life and exploring that there could be different ways of being productive. You know, so you know, it's mentoring to maybe work out either... Do they want to stay in being continually innovative? Are there are there other ways of facilitating other people being innovative so, or so, other roles so to play? Some, some people, some people, you know, they, you know, there is people do want to be. Most people want to feel that they are useful member mm. of society or mm. useful member of the department. And I, and I see some people who says, okay, I'm shifting my attention. I will do more committee work. I will do more teaching. I will find other way in which I can contribute. And some people are very open. Okay, I'm not active in this, but I will, I will be active in something mm-hmm. else. But not, not everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's a, especially psychologically, it's easier for both sides. It's easier to mentor younger people because they're younger and mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. tell them. And, and they're also more receptive. Okay. As you get and more, more motivated. And they're more well, motivated. They have to get yeah. tenure, so they're yeah, very motivated. Exactly. Yeah. If I go to a full professor and say, let yeah. me, let me mentor you, I, I say, I would say, I would even feel awkward about it. And I think they would feel awkward about it. And so it doesn't happen much. In fact, I had a, I have a colleague who had, uh, very, very bright, but had some issue with, with, a, with graduate student. And, end up not being a very good advisor to graduate student. And I now feel guilty that I always felt it was inappropriate of me. I'm not, I'm not in any, I don't know, I'm just a colleague, okay? Yes. I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a chair, I'm not a dean. Yeah. So I always felt it would be inappropriate for me to go and say, you know, let me talk to you about, would you like to have a conversation about the, that one area where you have a weakness? And I felt, no, it would not be appropriate. And now maybe maybe I made a mistake. Maybe yeah. I should have yeah. 
purpose to have a conversation. Maybe she would say no, but maybe she would have, maybe she would want, want to talk about it. But I have to say, I felt awkward to have mm. this conversation with someone who was a full professor. Mm. And I said, let me give you, let me talk to you about your weakness. Somehow I, I didn't feel comfortable. Yeah. And now I'm having second thoughts about yeah. it. We don't have that culture, do we? Of, no. Um, I, th- I think as part of the whole thing about needing to be seen to be producing our papers and being, you know, progressing our careers, you know, we're very good at putting up our veneers of success and not yeah. having that yeah. punctured. And I think that's part of the sort of reason why I started the podcast series was try to have some more real conversations about what's going on. And I wonder if it's the language of mentoring. I wonder if we need different language because if we look at what's happening in the business sector, just about every senior level C-suite um, yeah. executive will have a coach. So and it's, this is actually very interesting. You bring a different word, the coach. So there is a, a doctor in New York, and now I cannot think of his name. He's, uh, he's an uh, Indian doctor, but he's a very good writer. He writes very often in New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I will have to find his name. I mean, he just... Uh, but he's, he also written books. Yes, I think I know who you mean, and I can't. And, and he wrote an article some years ago, and I can find it. And he wrote an article about coaching. Mm-hmm. And he 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 was watching something on on uh, on TV, and he saw one of these you know world class tennis players talking to his coach, and he says, "This is a world class tennis player. This is the guy who wins in Wimbledon, and he's talking to his coach. He has a coach." He said, "How, how come I don't have a coach?" So he decides to hire a coach to himself, mm-hmm. and he writes about it. So he finds a, a, a retired surgeon, and he brings him to the operating room. He says, watch me in the operating room, and I want later to come and, and yeah. give me feedback. Yeah. And, uh, and then after the operation, the guy says, I do have some feedback to give you. And so first of all, he thought the guy would say, you're fantastic. There's nothing I can tell you. But the guy, but after he, he overcame his initial, oh my goodness, I'm not perfect, this was very, very useful feedback. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, yeah we, we don't have, we don't have coaches and maybe we should have coaches. I think we should. I, mean, I actually just did a master's degree in positive psychology and coaching practice. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. there's huge value in, yeah. and it's not even about picking up your, addressing your faults, but helping you, think through and continue that sort of how do I keep wanting to develop or grow and what do I want to change or making more explicit choices rather than just default settling back into not doing anything because you didn't get new grants. Well, I think, again, I think the the culture of success makes it a bit more difficult. So, I mean, suppose the things have not gone well for you, okay? It's very, very difficult for you to sit, like, for example, with your chair or dean or whatever is appropriate and who says, well, things have not, going, have not been going well. Maybe you can give me some advice how to, to do it better. I, I think people, most people feel very, very uncomfortable with that. In fact, yeah. when I was a chair, and I haven't been a chair now for many years. I stepped down in 2002. But uh, I came to Rice as a chair, and I'm kind of a go-by-the-book guy. And at first, I read all of Rice policies. So I need to know what are the policies. So I read, I read the policies. And the policy that says that a full professor should be reviewed every five years. So I said, okay. So I started reviewing full professor. 
And uh, the first two were, were really outstanding scholars, and it's almost hard to say, you're, do, you're, do, you're doing too much, do a little less. And so I wrote, a, a, I wrote each case, I wrote an evaluation, I sat down with them over lunch and discussed it, and it went very well. Well, the third was someone who was not quite meeting my expectations, mm-hmm. and I tried to tell him why not, and he did not take it kindly. And uh, until that point, we had a good relationship. That mm-hmm. was the, that was yeah. over for that yeah. for that relationship, yeah. and, and and he was not happy, and he complained to the dean, and on and on and on. And after that, I, I decided I'm not writing these evaluations yeah. anymore because I only can do them. Easily yeah. for the people who don't need them. But people who need them, it doesn't work, it's not working well. And rice, there was no structure. Now, if I had to do it again, mm. I, and I, in fact, I told the current chair, if you have a, an evaluation that's not glowing, discuss it with the dean in advance. So the dean will, you, you need to have someone backing you up yeah. before you do that. Yeah. Don't go to confront the yeah. full professor. You have not, first of all, uh, have the dean saying, yes, I, I support this. Yeah. But I also think we need training in how to have those conversations because yeah, yeah. there are different ways of having them that become, that can be really positive um, positive learning moments where you feel then supported in continuing to learn and develop. You know, and Well, in the business world, actually, there are now going away from annual evaluation. Mm, totally. That's they really not trendy they at all. They say now. that this is, this is, it's just too, yeah. it's just, it's too, you know, high, high anxiety. It's too much. In fact, I'm, I have a, what I do is, with, I try not to do annual evaluation. I try to give people feedback on a, on a ongoing basis. You did well on this one. You, this is, you could do done better this. So you never get to, oh my goodness, this is my annual evaluation. It's just, it's just too much anxiety. Okay, it just just imagine in your marriage that you do an annual evaluation. Okay, it would not it's not a good idea. It would not be a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. I still doesn't you know yeah. you have usually what happens is you discuss it. What you did this morning, I didn't like it. You know something like that. Yes. But you don't collect this incident over no. a year and pull them out for a year. Yeah. So no. So um, yeah, I totally agree. There's there's is a shift away from continuous a, a shift to more continuous. Continuous and it's continuous sort of. Feedback and and, and uh, conversations yeah, that yeah. that aren't so much sort of telling you what you did, but helping you do your own process of reflection, of, you know, and what you did well and what didn't work so well, and what you do differently next time, and what support you need to make that change. And so, yeah, so I think there's a whole training we need to do. Yeah, it's a little bit in, like really a therapy, right? Which is which that. you. It's more about asking questions about than about giving answers. Yeah, right? it's more about asking good questions. Yeah. In um, yeah. because we're dealing with intelligent, resourceful people um, who want to probably be engaged in their work and motivated. Yeah. Well, the difficulty is when someone is not very very well, they don't always want to recognize it. I mm. mean, as I said, people yeah. want to look at the mirror and feel good about themselves. So yeah. people don't always want to recognize yeah. what's not going well. And so it's not just they don't want to admit it to you. They don't. They may not want to admit it to, the, to themselves. No. Indeed. That's that's the more. I mean, when somebody if comes, somebody is willing to say, "No, I have a, mm. I have a challenge here. I would welcome advice." You know, that's the easy case, mm. right? It's when someone. I suspect does not even want to admit to themselves that there is an issue. Then yeah. it becomes yeah. a very difficult conversation. Yeah, and that's a different sort of path then. Yeah. 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 
Are there any things that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? Or um... I, I, I do think that we need more of a conversation overall, not just in computer science about our social responsibility, mm. but even as academics, okay? Because somehow, look, I, I, you're, you're, this is a public university, so it's kind of clear that you're paid by, by, by the, the city, by the yes, state. Yes, by I don't the know. state. Uh, by so the, yeah, so I'm, in a, I'm in a private university, so people don't quite think. Mm. But at the end of the day, my funding comes from mostly from, from uh, the federal government, okay? And... Um, Rice depends very much on generosity of, of foundations and alarms and, and friends. So I would say in some sense at the end of the day, I would say we're all kind of public, public yes. servants. Yeah. And, uh, but somehow the, the, the way the academic mindset is very much about your career, prove, prove yourself, show us that you're smarter than the other guy, show us what you can do. And there is just very little about, uh, about, uh, talk about privileges and, and obligations. I mean, I remember that I was, uh, some years ago, I was at Rice. When I, when I interviewed at Rice, I asked, is there a faculty handbook? And there was no faculty handbook at the time. So once I came to Rice, they said, you want a faculty handbook, right? Help us write it. So I was on a committee that helped wrote the first draft of the faculty handbook. Mm-hmm. And a question that we had a debate about is, do faculty member have an obligation for public service. So we all are used to, we tell, when you talk about evaluating people, we talk about the three legs of, of academia, mm-hmm. which is research, teaching, and service. Mm-hmm. And by service, we mean service to the profession, professional service. And we say, okay, we're supposed, you're supposed to contribute to the department, mm-hmm. you know, in, in growing circles. And yes. the circles are department, maybe school, faculty, university, and profession. And that's where we usually stop. Okay. And so we had debate. Do people have a, a bigger obligation of service? And there were some strong voices that said, no, this is where it stops. We don't have any obligation of service outside the profession. We expect people to do it in the profession. But beyond that, you could do it if you want, but it's not, should not be part of mm. the normal expectations. And I think we need to have a conversation again on what is our what are our societal obligations? I mean, I look at it, for example, um, the issue of how technology impacts society is now today one of the biggest issues yeah. that the world is facing, not just the world is facing. I mean, if I look at really what are the two kind of big challenges, I would say is climate change, which is dealing with impact of, of a particular technology, right? Fossil fuel. Yes. And uh, right now, the other one is, the, is populism and the decline of democracy and the, what's called the liberal uh, world order, which I think we play the major role, okay, in, in not only role, it's more complicated, but technology, I think, is a, played a key role in making it happen. Yeah, it's an enabler for it. It's clearly yeah. an enabler, yeah. okay? So to me, these are the, the big issue for society right now. Now you can look at university and we say, okay, how much of, of our bandwidths, how much of, of our cycles grow to think and help society cope with these two big challenges? And I think the answer is actually very little. Yeah. I think we just go about doing our daily what we do yeah. because that's, first of all, 
people do normally, get up in the morning and they do what they do. Okay, we have we all follow we all follow the same dance, kind of pretty much. Yeah. Every and we're all day. busier and busier, and busier following and busier that dance because uh, we have to. You know, we are measured by everything yes. we do. Yeah. But overall, at the university, it just. Uh, how much is this institution? So we say, look, we do one thing which is very important. We are training, we are teaching people. I think this is, I feel very good about teaching people. That's a good, that's a good thing to teach people, to give, transmit knowledge to the next generation. But beyond that, how much are we thinking about, about society? What's our obligation to society? I don't know here. In, in ISIS, this is not part of the vocabulary. No. That's not what people talk about. People talk about my teaching. I have to teach because I'm required to teach. Yes. My undergraduate teaching is a requirement. Okay. And then my, my graduates, I have PhD students to help me with my research. And why do you do research? Because I like it and it's good for my career. And that's what the discussion is about. Mm. There's just very little discussion. We are public, we are public servants. What does it mean? So I think we what, need to open this conversation. What would you do as a practical measure? What would be one practical measure to try to make that more of a focus? So uh, we are just launching a TRICE, uh, an initiative called Technology, Culture and Society. And it's supposed to be a university-wide initiative to think about these kind of issues. Mm-hmm. And there are people that I've, I, we have, I've kind of built an advisory board and people have been very, very responsive, saying, yes, we should do that. We are just starting, so we nice. are kind of trying to kick it off. We will see what we can do. Uh, one of the things, any activity university needs resources. We'll have to try to find resources. We'll probably have to go and do some some fundraising for that to see what we can do. Um, the, the interesting thing is that this uh, this disaster with, uh, with CRISPR, the fact that Rice found itself involved in it and suddenly find itself on front-page news and not in the way that it likes to find itself... And I said, the, the students now, they want more ethics. The students said, we need, yes. the students said, we need ethics, more ethics training. So, you know, maybe there is, there is a kind of a, my hope is that uh, we will try to have impact at the level of, and maybe the biggest impact we could have on the future is with education. You know, it's hard to change it. You know, if I try to go change my colleague's mind, it's difficult. Yeah. They are kind of. But we can shape the future but, but generation who will be if dealing we, with this. If challenges. we, because, you know, I gave, I was asked to give a talk at Trinity, Trinity University about two months ago. And it's, it's, a, it's a liberal art college. It's a four-year institution. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to give a talk. They have something called FYE, First Year Experience. It's kind of a freshman seminar where it cuts across all the majors. They have like four themes and they kind of go together. So it's a... They want to train them in critical thinking mm-hmm. and, and, and communication and talking to each other. And so I was asked to talk about the, the come and talk about the future of work. And I have a talk that I can give. I can wake up and give a talk mm-hmm. like in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, now I'm talking to first freshman students. So I changed the talk a little bit. And in the way that I talk about the situation, and I end up by just describing the current, I would say, societal polarization in the United States. And I end up saying, this is, my generation left you this legacy. It is up to you to do something about it. And it had incredible resonance with the student, probably mm-hmm. more than I've given yeah. hundreds of talks over my yeah. career. This is one of the things that I really feel the students were 
it probably was the first time I said the students were moved by my talk. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, if I ask, you ask me, how do you want people to act to your talk? I would say they should find it interesting, interesting. you know, contentful. Yeah. But I wouldn't tell you that my talks are usually moving. Okay, that's not when I talk about first order logic. I wouldn't expect the people to be moved by the talk. Even when I talk about the, the future of work, people usually tell me, how, how would you find it? I said, yeah, they find it interesting, maybe disturbing. Just my, my, and then I went to lunch with a group of students. And they were clearly moved. So I think we have a chance with the next mm, generation. Yeah. My colleagues here, um, Chris Fraunberger and Peter Pogatoffer, have just are teaching for the second cycle a Ways of Thinking course to the mm-hmm. first year computer mm-hmm. science students. And it's trying to get them at the very beginning to think about you know, different critical ways of thinking from you know, scientific thinking to mathematical thinking, criminal thinking, um, ethical thinking, design thinking, and it goes on. Um, and I think those sorts of courses are really interesting. And I was talking to David Hendry from uh, Washington, and he's doing some really interesting courses with his students where he's taking more of a policy angle, which is addressing some of the policy issues as well, giving them scenarios to think through policies. So maybe there's also a move happening and you know, with quite a few people starting to think about how to teach these Well, ideas. especially think of like... And this probably would be also for, for, for TUV students, but mm. definitely do for mm. Rice, Rice students. Rice students, Rice is elite private university. Okay. We select students. Generally, they're probably in the top percentiles. Okay. These are very, very bright students. And from higher socioeconomic, if it's uh, We actually, we actually, we, so, so tuition is fairly high, but we have a mm. very, very generous financial aid. Right. So, so I think if you have like income below $130,000, you're not really paying any tuition. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, some people paying tuition, but overall, if you look at, at the rice total budget, operating budget, tuition income is actually maybe right. 20%. It's a small. So mm-hmm. we actually are quite generous with financial aid. So we have some students that come from middle class background, maybe some from working class background. But what I do, effectively, we're giving the students ticket to the educated professional class. But we're not telling them, we're not, there is no, it's not part of, of the conversation. But just by being here now, by having a rice undergraduate degree, congratulations, you've made it into the, into the elite. Now you have an obligation to the other 80% of the population. Yeah. It's just not part of the conversation. Yeah. And to me, somehow the fact that we have such polarization, and this is not just me talking. I mean, there have been, um, uh, there was a book, what, what is it called? Some, some book came out. One was, one was called, I think, The, the Dream Holders. And it talks about how this uh, top 20% are kind of, devising the, the system in a way that they, they, it's good for them in some sense. Yeah. I mean, even, for example, they would, we go to some of our alums and it says, well, we have benefited you, so be generous with us. And they are generous with us. Okay? And so we have an endowment that keeps growing up, partly because they are, mm. they are, they are generous with us, because we've contributed to their success. So 
you know, and not to talk about the whole concept of, you know, of legacy admission, where we make it easier to people who are generous with us to, to come to institutions like RISE. So, so this elite group is taking good care of itself. Yes. And what does it do? But what do, you know, we have not really paid enough attention to, to the other 80% of the population. And this is partly what driving today, mm. uh, unrest and dissatisfaction, mm. people who feel they have been, they've been left behind. Yeah. So it's making me think that we need not only educating people around social responsibility and sort of you know, ethical aspects of decisions that they might make or be involved in, but also something more around social-emotional skills training, which is trendy in schools with young kids. Yeah. But many of the generations coming through now haven't had that training because there's something about a, a sensitivity and awareness of people who aren't like you and a skill set to know how to engage, how to do perspective-taking... Well, it, it, it kind of goes back where we can kind of almost close the conversation, but we go back to the beginning. Mm. So I talked to you about my, my, uh, my religious background. I was actually thinking about that My as religious well. background. And I said there are, when you look at Judaism, I mean, it's very much a religion mm. of do this, do, we, do not do yeah. this, do this, do not do this. There are 613 things that you have to do, some positive, some negative. And, and the debate is, between the thing that you do towards God, like keeping cautious between you and God, and uh, being nice to your fellow human being. And now if you, this tension between two things, it's if you just read the Bible, you read Leviticus, Leviticus is sacrifice at this, it's you and God, you and God, you and God. But then you go to the prophets, and what do the prophets are all about? You know, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, the prophets tell you, be nice to your fellow human beings. Okay? This is part of what, this is really what their value system. In fact, mm. there was a famous mm. sage who was called Hillel the Elder. And a gentle came to him and asked, explain to me Judaism while I'm standing on one foot. <laughs> and Hillel said, love thy neighbor as yourself. The rest is commentary. And, and somehow this, this, uh, this attitude that uh, we are stuck with each other here. Yes. You know, uh, 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 what's the Sartre said? Hell is other people. <laughs> okay? Beautiful, beautiful uh, expression, right? Getting along with people is hard. Mm. But it's just beyond just getting along with people, which mm. is social skill, but also mm. social justice as part yes. of the value system. Yeah. It's somehow, it's not part of the conversation. Yeah. And to me, it has to be part of the conversation. Well, that's a lovely note to end on, to, for us to think about. Thank you so much for your time, Mache. Really enjoyed talking with you and just so many interesting things to think about. And thank you for being out there in the world and trying to make a difference and, and really bringing this message more and more into the public domain. My pleasure. Thank you. So if you enjoyed this conversation and you haven't already done so, I'd really encourage you to listen to part one, where he unpacks in a lot more detail what are the impacts of technology on our society and the critical importance for getting involved in discussing and exploring those implications and really taking seriously our responsibility as academics, talking about it in a different way to what he has done here. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. 
You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.